Welcome back to another episode of the NES Experience. Thanks for tuning in. Please like and subscribe to our podcast if you enjoy uh, listening to us here. And it's been a little while since we've done an episode. We took a little bit of a break for Memorial Day weekend. And uh, Ned has a little bit of a new look for the summer. He's not wearing a headband. I don't think I've ever seen you not wearing a headband before. What's going on? Uh, the the headband is actually in the washer. Most of the kids uh, that <clears throat> are doing my training, they're like, why do you wear a headband every day? Is it because you're bald? So what I don't understand is if I was trying to hide my baldness, why would I only expose the baldness? Yeah, it's pretty pretty exposed. It's kind of almost like a reverse yarmulke you got going on when you're wearing the headband. Right. Right. So, yeah, no, if I was trying to hide being bald, I would wear hats. I would wear yarmulkes. Uh, I don't know, sun hats, fedoras. But, nope, I'm just exposing the uh, the baldness. So, I, uh, I actually used to wear a fedora in high school after we after every time we won you know a football game i'd put on a little victory fedora as we'd walk out of the the visiting team's locker room only wear it for road games so i i was that guy what fedoras are a hard look to pull off i did not do it well um yeah no there's very few top of the head items i could wear to not look like a complete idiot when i wear a forward hat i look like a fat charlie brown so going back to this headband thing, to solve the mystery, the reason why I wear a headband is I sweat. I sweat more than any human alive. Uh, I don't know if it's because of my beefiness stature, but for years, like I had hair in high school and my sister would always say, oh, you look like a wet dog because I'd be sweating all the time and it would look like shit. And then early college, I tried to bust the George Clooney with the gel that goes and you kind of spread it around the top of the forehead and then I would sweat and then it would look like shit. Then I went with the M&M blonde where I bleached my hair and cut it real short. Uh, and that was, uh, not too bad. And then at the tender age of 22, so I'm taking it all off and it was, it was a magnificent experience and I would never go back to hair ever again because um it allows me to not look like a wet dog but the answer is i wear the headband because i pour sweat and it just soaks it up so uh it's i'm not trying to hide anything it would be the excessive sweating because when once it comes down from the face where does it go sweat ring can't be the dude with the sweat ring because i already got the armpit stains you can't pair the arms the armpit stains with the sweat ring it just it turns into a spectacle. So all it's doing is soaking it up. I need windshield wiper on my forehead. That's how much I sweat out of my head. There you go, buddy. That's actually news to me. You you like at twenty two, you just shaved it all off. You decided to go bald. Yeah. So like you could grow hair like now if you wanted to, hypothetically. How how often do you shave your head? Yes, yes, I could grow hair. I use the uh, head buzzers probably every four or five days. If I had hair, I would probably look like it would be like a mild George Costanza. So I think I, I would build it up higher. Like I got a bald spot. I don't really have a receding hairline, but I got a bald spot. And But the last time I really 
was able to grow hair out to notice what the bald spot looked like. But I kind of know because when you shave your head and it gets three or four days, you get little fuzzies and you kind of get an idea where the line is. But so not full George Costanza, like a light, a light version. No, I mean, gotta, gotta respect the move. I think uh, my dad has a, a bald spot, not to put him on blast, but it is what it is. And I think, yeah, I'd do the same thing probably. Wouldn't have to spend money on shampoo really at all. And yeah, it just seems like a good idea in general. Just got to rock it like that. One bottle lasts two years. There you go. That's, uh, that's recession and inflation proof. But we're not here to talk about things going on in the world today. Uh, but some things that are going on in the world today that are relevant to us is, uh, Ned, you've, uh, you've happened to train a few All-Americans uh, that have come through recently, uh, haven't you? Uh, yeah, we had, we've had three All-Americans pop in the last two months. Um, Amanda Castaldi, which they hated on her. She didn't get a post for it, but she, uh, she is a high school sprinter. <clears throat> and she went All-American in the 4x100. And then college, Tyler Hansen, uh, he's at Springfield College. Uh, he became All-American in the 4x1. They finished sixth. And Gabby Prisco, she is a lax broette at Endicott College. And so she was back-to-back Defensive Player of the Year, and this year she got All-American. So uh, two, two track athletes, one lacrosse, pretty excited. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, high school All-American, you really don't see that a lot. There's I mean, so many high school athletes, it's extremely difficult. College All-American, too, is just incredible accomplishment. So congrats to those guys. Uh, trained with a few of them. Just really great for them. It's awesome stuff. So when I was kind of going through these three, I was like, you know, how did they reach that level? I mean, they were all great athletes before they met me. So a good genetic base definitely uh, helps a whole bunch. Some of them I didn't get until college. Amanda, who I think you trained with, I've had her since she was 13. But some things that I noticed that they all have in common is, number one, parental support. So if you look at all three families, it was always doing whatever they can to, to put the athlete in the best position to succeed, whether it was performance training or skill work or you know going to all the games and they uh they were completely entrenched in in their child's lives and doing whatever they could to make them great so that was one uh they all have an elite work ethic are there all americans with no work ethic of course but when you look at you know these three specifically i mean they never miss workouts um they always do the extra stuff they 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 literally maximize they maximize their genetic potential and their athletic potential through you know outworking people <clears throat> and they're all I mean at least two of them Gabby and Manders or Amanda she uh, they were all training through COVID not taking time off they just they just did everything they could possibly do to get that competitive advantage and the third thing is they all they either all are D three or went D three. So Manders is going to uh, Wheaton College to play two sports, interestingly enough. She's doing soccer and track. The other two, they went to D3 schools, but they all could have gone D1 in their prospective main sport. So, you know, this kind of brings up the whole 
everybody's dying need to go. I would rather be a D3 All-American than a D1 bench warmer. I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah, actually, it is kind of funny you mentioned that. I as well went D3. I had the opportunity to go D1. There was a little bit of a debate between me and some of the Division One, Division One AA coaches of what position I should play. And I went to a D3 school where I could play quarterback. Uh, a lot of other places wanted, you know, thought of me as a, as a tight end, even though I didn't fucking play that in, in high school. So I don't know why they thought that, but is what it is. But yeah, I, I, I went D3. I got to play first two years there and then I blew out my ACL. I, again, is what it is, but I'm happy with the decision. Uh, you get to play college. And that at the end of the day, that's what matters. Not a lot of people make it. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's great. Go where you can make an impact and play immediately. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, too, is go where you have the best connection with your coaching staff, too. You, If you're going to go somewhere D1, you, you better really love the coaches because you're going to spend all your fucking life with them there. You know, more time than you really think. They're going to be your best friends whether you want them to be or not. So I liked the coaching staff that recruited me where I went, and that, that played a huge factor in it too. So, But make an impact as soon as you can. That's huge. You just want opportunities. Go wherever you can, really, for that. But, yeah, it doesn't matter what division. I agree. Cool. So one of the things that we wanted to talk about today, as we've kind of been – I've been watching a lot of baseball. I'm a huge Yankee fan. But – a lot of the Yankees have been hurt recently in the last couple of weeks and just wanted to kind of get your opinion on why, you know, why are so injuries so common now? I know, especially for big guys, you know, you see big guys get hurt all the time in, in all sports, but there's just, I mean, you can't really go like a week without hearing about someone either tearing something in training or having it happen on the field. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many avenues you could go trying to figure out, you know, why it's happening. And there's there's a lot of different reasons. So I'm just going to firing squad out, you know, a lot of the things that I'm saying. So first off, hey, athletes are playing too many sports. So it's too much sports, not enough training. You've heard me say that before. But every sprint cut, change of direction, jump, load, you know, body contact, you're, you're getting cumulative amounts of stress that are put on the body. So doing too much. And then I'll even take on, you know, Ned's approach of athletes should specialize once they get to high school. So that end, you have too many kids that are playing the same sport for too long because soccer's now a year round sport, basketball's a year round. I mean, the actual game of playing baseball or basketball or football, soccer, lacrosse, whatever, when you look at high school, they have the you got obviously you got to play high school season and then you got to play you know whatever summer AAU summer club teams whatever so you do that and then that's another 4 months which is basically another sport and then that after that they're getting you know the skill instruction component which is adding more it's just whether you're playing three sports or you're playing one sport in a lot of cases, they're playing too much sports and the body breaks down. So that's number one. Number two, improper training. So athletes, and this is what we're going to talk about, 
is you know front side dominant, squatting too much, benching three days a week, squatting three days a week, doing cleans every day, uh, always breaking the body down in the weight room and never taking time to modify the volume or intensity to prevent overtraining from happening. There's this thing where people just lift and lift and lift and they get tighter and tighter and tighter and more overdeveloped. Everyone neglects the flexibility and mobility component. And what you get is these big guys like Aaron Judge. If I'm training Aaron Judge or Stanton or somebody like that, they're monsters. I'm not heavy lifting them. I'm not tempo hypertrophy lifting them. I'm doing all variable resistance, accommodating resistance, speed explosiveness work, and then a shit ton of physical therapy, corrective joint stability, core development, monitoring their bodies. Because, and and those genetic, I don't want to talk about the two biggest monsters in MLB, but, you know, for those guys, and they could be doing that. So, which kind of takes me, they could be, maybe they are, I don't know. But if they are doing more joint stabilization, injury prevention stuff with explosiveness and not heavy lifting or high, super high volume stuff to get even bigger, they're not getting smaller. So, you know, that's a big component of it is there's, there isn't necessarily individuality in, in a lot of these programs and everybody kind of does the same thing. And they're fueling the overdominant muscles. If you look at, you know, throwing athletes in baseball and a lot of these movements out there, they are. They're front side, quad dominant, chest dominant. You throw a ball your whole life, your chest, your lats, your traps, everything's going to tighten up. Then that happens and then you have instability in the shoulder. And when you have instability in the shoulder, you're going to have injuries. So that's another point. And then guys are just, you know, 50 years ago, guys are throwing harder. They're hitting the ball harder, running faster. Technology is, 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 is around now. And these guys are just genetic, huge monster freaks that, you know, the more explosive you are and the more twitchy you are, Odell Beckham Jr., super twitchy, these guys get hurt because they're doing, you know, I don't want to say superhuman things. So at that, you know, major league, elite level, professional level, it's, you know, that you're going to have injuries because of the nature of the sport, the level that you're playing at, and how developed they are. Now, at the college level, at the high school level, I mean, a lot of that overlaps, but it's a problem. And if you look at, I'm in contact with all my athletes through the whole season. You know, bumps and bruises, those come along, but major injuries, knock on whatever, you know, we, we are able to prevent and reduce the risk of injuries, you know, a whole bunch, which is which is good. But uh, it's, a, it's a big problem right now at all levels. Yeah, no, it definitely seems like it. I mean, every year people get hit with the injury bug. I mean, it happens to teams all the time, but it just seems a little bit more, I mean, maybe because I'm a, a Yankee fan, so I'm just complaining that they're all hurt. But it does seem like a lot of people are getting hurt more. I know it, announcers seem to be talking about, oh, you know, COVID, blame it on COVID. But, yeah, I, I think it's definitely more kind of what you said with just uh, overtraining, overstimulating things, and just people are kind of genetic freaks nowadays, and they're throwing harder, playing harder, and shit tears when that happens. It's just an unfortunate part of the game. All you can do is just injury prevention and stuff. But that kind of 
takes us into our, our main kind of topic for this episode. It's going to be what we named the episode after uh, at the end of the day, although we haven't come up with a name just yet. That's all right, though. Uh, we're, we're going to be talking about how you, know, you, you evaluate athletes when they come in for the first time uh, to your performance facility. So really, when we were talking before about this, there are about five or six things. Uh, you know, areas where you kind of look at to evaluate athletes for, for various things. And the first kind of thing was just, I know that happened when I came on is we talk about, you know, sport history and injury history, just kind of right off the bat things that are hurting or have hurt in the past. Yeah. Your, your sport injury history is a blueprint of what I'm going to see when you start to move around the, typically if you have, you know, and I'll use throwing also, but when you, when you take athletes through, we use a kinetic chain evaluation, um, an overhead squat assessment, looking at the ankle, knees, hips, shoulders. That is one of the ways when somebody first, well, when they first come in that we assess them to look at their, all their joints and their range of motions and what they can do and not do. But before that, you know, I used to get to the point where people thought I was psychic because I would just do an overhead squat assessment and then I would write everything down. You know, this trap is on the left side is elevated and, you know, this gap is depressed and your shoulders are forward and this is coming in and this is coming out. And then I would basically spell out and be like, all right, well, you probably had a knee related injury. And then when that happened, you started to compensate, you switched over to the other leg and then that's why this happened. And your, but yeah, injury history is big. We pair that with the kinetic chain. And then that kind of, then they'll be like, yes. And I had this and that. And most of the time, the injuries weren't treated the right way. They didn't use good physical therapists. They, you know, ankle sprains is so common. It's like I get kids that come in. One of the most important things jumping right into one of the bullet points, which is movement um, and acceleration. People come in, I want to get faster, I want to get my first step quickness, explosiveness, first 10 yards, want to improve that. And when you bring, when you start to look at, you know, what they're doing versus what it should look like, you get a lot of restriction in their ankle joint. The ankle joint is very important. It's part of the kinetic chain. It helps transfer force, it absorbs and redirects force um, into the ground. And if you are limited in the range of motion in your ankle, you're not going to be able to be as elastic as what we say. You're not going to be as elastic off the ground. And it's going to be harder to produce force because the ankle can't go through its optimal range of motion. And then when you go back and you say, well, how many ankle sprains did you have? And, you know, seven. So what happens is ankle sprains, nobody does things that are necessary to restore the ankle to prevent it from happening again, which is, you know, doing mobility work with the ankle, strengthening the anterior tib, the front part of the shin, stretching the calf. They'll do some ankle strengthening if they do go to PT, but they don't typically do the mobility component. So when you sprain an ankle and don't get it rehabbed the right way, you lose more and more uh, mobility from the ankle. And then you'll be sitting there walking out of your house, you step on a rock and you sprain your ankle again. That's because your ankle doesn't have the mobility to absorb that unstable surface without snapping it. 
every time you sprain an ankle, you lose more and more mobility if it's not treated the right way. So it kind of gets to the point where your foot is in, you know, it moves around like a cast, but when something bad happens, it snaps. That's one example. But ankle sprains, no, how long was the last time you were somebody? Yes, maybe at MBA, they're trying, you know, they're, they're making sure that I'd like to think because some professional organizations do a great job and some don't do a great job. Just because they're professional organizations doesn't mean that they hire the most qualified candidate. There's a, a lot of, much like life, there's a lot of politics involved at all levels. And at the professional level, I mean, I, we're not going to drop any names. Well, we'll go to the college level. At the college level, you know, this guy, I was able to witness and see his programs on a daily basis. I watched the end result of the team, which was under 500. And the head coach got fired, and uh, he was friends with another school. And now this kid is at a top 20 school, or the strength and conditioning coach is at a top 20 school in the nation to to be left unnamed. And he's complete fucking horse shit. He's absolutely terrible. And he negatively affected one of my kids' careers significantly. And and my kid came out of his program broke, weaker, and slower. So, and he's at blank and blank right now. I should say it and you could beep it out, but I'll just not say it. So you would, if you heard this prestigious name of university that he is at right now, you'd be like, well, this guy's going to be, he's one of the best guys in the country. And the reality of it is it's, he got the job because... He was the, uh, his boss who brought him into the school was the former defensive coordinator. So he got, he get this, he got this guy uh, a nice cushy gig. And that's one of the top programs in college, but it happens at the pro levels also. And there's some really great ones, but you can't go by the name. I'm not going to go off on a rant on that, but I already did. Yeah, it, it is difficult. Uh, my, my training staff at college, I feel bad for him having to deal with me. I got hit while I was throwing a football right on the elbow, like right, I mean, just square there on the hubris bone pretty much. And the thing swelled up on me like a grapefruit my entire arm the next day. So I have uh, talked about a voodoo doctor in the past, and he had taught me when things swell up, you just take all the ace bandages in the world and you just like, you, you called it a death wrap and you would just completely wrap everything that was swollen. You have to wrap around the thumb and stuff. I'm not a doctor, so don't try this at home. And it, uh, yeah, the swelling went down the next day. They thought I would wouldn't play for the rest of the year and I got to finish out the last two games, but it was, it was, it was really painful. It was disgusting. You, you really a good training staff is very important, and it, they're very treat them well if you have good ones. They're they're just awesome people when when they are good, when they're not, that life's difficult. But that that is very important. Just knowing an athlete's injury history that makes a lot of sense actually, of of why you kind of do that. So well, going back to the movement component, so. If you look at, we'll keep rolling with acceleration. So things that we need, we need ankle mobility. You need strength in the in the muscles that pull the toe up to optimally run the anterior tib. You need single leg strength. So you always see guys on two legs, double leg strength doesn't always transfer over to single leg strength, which is why in our program we do heavy single loaded Bulgarians and split squats and things that are going to help 
the the speed transfer over, you know, on the field. Nobody addresses core. Core is an energy transfer from the lower body to the upper body. It helps maintain an optimal body angle to accelerate the right way. Um, so, and typically, athletes are deficient in in their core strength. Uh, stabilization is important, keeping the pelvis in alignment, so we're loading the muscles the right way. So if you have tight hip flexors, weak hamstrings, um, you, and your pelvis is in a different position, you're going to be loading the lower back when you're running, which A, increases the risk of injury, and B, uh, it doesn't optimize that, that transfer of force to really let you be as fast as you can be. You know, Even at the upper body, upper body, when you look at arm mechanics, you want to take your arms through full ranges of motion to help that opposing leg <clears throat> go through an optimal range of motion to be able to put force into the ground. But if you do bench five days a week and you can't wipe your own ass like thing from the Fantastic Four uh, and you look like that, you're not going to be able to, you're going to run very forced and unelastic as opposed to elastic. So one of the things we do is, you know, I used to be, full kinetic chain and FMS and movement screenings. And you see all these guys that are doing all these, these pre-tests. And the only way that your pre-test is good is if you are smart enough to create a game plan and reassess for the post-test. So what I see in this business, in this world, is a whole bunch of pre-testing. And it's really just, they use it to build value or tell people that, oh yeah, we're fixing your imbalances and whatever. Because even if you could if you're smart enough to do the functional testing and, and analysis of it, and you still have to be able to write a program, troubleshoot, and figure it out. And that takes a lot of experience to be able to figure it out. So I like athletes moving around. It tells me a story. It shows me what's tight. It shows me what's weak, You know where their areas are deficient. So I'm less formal evaluation, a formal evaluation and more... Let's get out there and see you move and, and, and go tell me a story on on what's going on. And then as we go along, we uncover things and, and, and address them. And it's not like we're uncovering things. After four months, you know, if I see an athlete move around for a week, we acclimate the athletes when they first come in. We're not trying to kill them with weight. We're taking them through full ranges and teaching them new exercises and filling in deficits and, and just watching them move. And then usually after about a week, it's like, all right, well, this is this is where we need to go to, you know, fix these problems, and then we address them as soon as possible and fix them, and and that helps a whole bunch. So, with with movement, it's it's seeing them move around, let them tell me the story, and then we create a game plan to change that. Yeah, I I get why that makes sense. Why you want to see someone move instead of just kind of taking the word for it and saying, oh, you know, I sprained my ankle or, oh, I did this. You know, you could probably pick up on a lot of other things too, just watching them go through an active dynamic warm up, or, well, you know, if they can Bulgarian 10 pounds more on one leg than the other, that's a little bit telling. But the, the other area where you evaluate them is also for, for power and speed, right? Yes. So what you find is people kind of go into two categories, and I'll use, I don't know why I use, Odell Beckham Jr. so much, but um, so a lot of guys are either force-driven, so a force-driven guy, and there's some as, uh, bleh, elasticity to him, but Saquon Barkley, completely different build than Odell Beckham Jr. 
So Saquon is kind of a run over you, put your foot in the ground and go. He's a force. He generates huge forces. He, whatever, clean 450. Saquon isn't even a good example anymore because he's always hurt. And I don't want to say I called it, but he's always hurt because his quads are massive. And uh, he's completely frontside dominant. And I knew he was going to absolutely break down. He's a big force guy. And then when you look at, you know, OBJ, and you can give me when I get done talking two other examples between these guys, but he's a wiry, twitchy guy that's super explosive. So when athletes are moving around, we want to figure, like, and the answer is you want to blend a both, and you want to train both. So we can look at in the weight room, you know, is this a force guy? And typically when they're not elastic, part of it is they didn't do enough, you know, power, plyometric, stretch shortening type stuff. And also it's the lack of mobility. So you want to get somebody to jump higher, you know, make their ankles and hips more mobile and that you're going to be more elastic. So my best jumper is Spitz. Everybody sees the Spitz jumping videos. Uh, and he's a guy who is built like OBJ, meaning he can create huge forces. Or I'm sorry. He has a lot of elasticity in his calves. Uh, one, somebody said he looks like Bambi out there. And to me, that was the ultimate compliment. So Part of the reason why animals, they have that springy, elastic, explosiveness, twitchy type movement to them, which is why even Sinny, when I was chasing his ass in the yard, he was he was able to just smoke me. And he's like nine pounds just because athletes move very elastic. Not that I'm an animal behavior expert. Um, so what we want to see is, you know, are they more of a force guy? Are they more an elastic Typically, people lean one way or the other, and then the approach is we either fuel their elasticity or fuel their um, force or a blend of both. Um, in most cases, we, we kind of address both. So that's one part of strength. Strength at different joint angles. So some guys, another example, I, I have an unnamed person. We've been preparing for the spring combines, and he was struggling with his 5 and it was, he had a hard time bending over to touch the line. And when he was coming out of his last, his last five yards to sprint through the line, he popped straight up. And that's because he doesn't have strength. Well, it's a blend of two things. He doesn't have the mobility to in his hips to get low and stay low. And two, he has more strength. At, he doesn't have strength at that joint angle. So we started to modify his training we put in some correctives that work a lot, you know, with hip depth, um, star tempoed things to, to teach them how to explode out a lower, a lower hip angle, box squatting, and, and making that angle lower to get them stronger at, at a lower range of motion. So that's one component. Front side dominant, which I bring up all the time, bench squat, clean deadlift, over dominant quads and calves. We teach our athletes to use the gluten hamstrings to produce power. And you don't find a lot of people that have abnormally weak quads because everybody, between the sport that they play, because they haven't learned how to run the right way, they're running with their quads around and they're completely neglecting the backside. And we, one of our keys to improving speed, uh, developing strength and teaching them to produce force using the backside of their body. So there's, you know, that's just a couple examples of, of things that we do and what we're looking at to help with, you know, maximizing potential and front side dominant, 
exercises, by doing those, it, it makes every muscle has a specific length and tension. If one muscle gets shorter, an opposing muscle gets longer, which makes sense. If you, you can't wear, you know, if you're driving a car, if your alignment isn't right, you're putting premature wear on the front of the car or two, two tires, you know, the left side or the right side. So front side dominance causes instability in the ankle, knee, hips, and shoulders. And dominance from the left side to the right side is going to cause, you know, injuries also. So part of what we're trying to do is see, you know, what side they're dominant, which is why we do single arm, single leg stuff to try and fill in the other side to create, you know, we want all the tires to wear evenly as opposed to more on the front or the back or the left or the right. Awesome. That, uh, that, that probably about does it for the physical aspect of, of your evaluations. I think, uh, if, if I'm not wrong, the next thing that I have down here is, uh, the psychological aspect of being an athlete. You want to talk about that a little bit, what that kind of means? Um, it's, it's something that's not really brought up a lot, but and what I'm learning year by year by year, because the way I design my business, I am able to have a lot of close relationships with my athletes, and that's important for a, a lot of different reasons. So psychologically, when they come in, I want to know, my goal is to know as much about my athletes as possible. The things that I want to hear, the things that I don't want to hear. Um, a lot of them suffer with anxiety, depression. Since COVID, we've been getting a lot of we've been getting more mental health issues. I want to know how they tick. I want to know how they're motivated. Uh, some some people how they learn. Some are visual learners. Some are learning by, you know, reading. Some people don't need a lot of attention. Some people need a whole bunch of attention, probably too much. Understanding what's going on in their brain. You can tell an athlete you need to gain weight and give them all the tools to gain weight, but there's the psychological component of why are they the weight that they are, and it's not always just physical. So women in eating disorders, uh, that's becoming really common. That's important to know when you're trying to get somebody, you know, especially to change their food. So the goal is for them to feel comfortable with me to kind of Tell, tell me everything that's going on. You should know. I My approach has to change according to what's going on with them. You got to know when to back off, but this goes back to I want to know everything that's going on with them, and that'll help me create a better plan, and it'll give me a heads up to know, you know if things aren't going right and what adjustments to make to kind of get them right back on the path. So there's that you know, a psychological component. Performance anxiety is a thing. 40 anxiety is a thing that nobody, you don't hear a lot of people talk about, but, you know, when you are, what happens when you train for four months and you don't get the numbers, you know, that exactly you were hoping for. And then everybody's like, oh, you got to do this and you got to run a four five and you got to run a four five. You got to run a four five or you're, you're not going anywhere. And, you know, it becomes performance anxiety and I've seen it happen before at all levels and you know some people can be like oh no you're just making an excuse because it was a guy that you couldn't get faster well when you get when you clock a guy at a specific time and then seven days later it's or, or 14 days later it's two tenths of a second slower I mean it's not like that he hasn't done it so something is going on 
And then, I mean, it, could, it can be a bad day. But when you hear all these people saying all these things, it wears on you. Confidence is a humongous thing. If you look at athletes that perform at a high level, you go out there and you kill it. And because I have guys, every time they went out there, they PR'd on their 40. And it's like you build it and, and it builds up and you get more con- confidence is what allows pitchers. Everybody talks about ball velocity and how hard you throw a ball by the fucking bottle of water. God damn it. Just a big fucking wire nest of bullshit. I just dumped water all over my floor and all over the computer. No. And I completely lost my train of thought. So when you look at pitchers and everybody, you know, looks at how hard they throw, um, what happens when, you know, athletes start to throw harder is their confidence builds. And there's athletes where, you know, they, their velocity might only go up a little bit, but they gain 20 to 25 pounds and they spend a year or an off season dedicated themselves to training and what happens is when you go out there and you're 25 pounds heavier, you're going to throw your stuff with more confidence, even if the, you know, the, the velocity isn't there. So building and losing confidence, whether it's in season, off season, and handling those, the roller coasters of, of emotion that occur in the adversity, you know, the way that it's handled and the way that these coaches don't understand, but the, the things that they're saying, you got to build kids up no matter what, no matter what the situation is, it's going to be good. And you got to, you, you don't want to bury them. You want to build them. And then anybody that's done sports, you overcome it's adversity, you overcome and you eventually succeed. But when you're in the moment and, and you know, the results aren't necessarily happening and no one can figure out why the worst thing that you can do is, you know, take them keep taking them down the wrong direction and and kind of bury them so you know psychologically there's a lot that goes on and it's there's a time that we spend you know a lot of people don't understand we spend one and a half to two hours three days a week in the weight room you know doing our training and physically preparing ourselves i spend more time with a lot of my athletes more than the time that they're in the weight room, outside of the weight room, outside of the normal hours, talking to them about everything that's going on. And I do it because for me, it's just the end result. Somebody's got to do it. I don't want to lose. They don't want to lose. So um, there's almost, there's almost, and it depends. Some people less, some people more, but psychologically that's all the stuff that you don't see on the Graham story um, about making sure these kids are confident and that they perform at a high level confidence is key absolutely it is I actually had an old lady come into my bank every fucking Monday when I was still working at a bank and telling me how she was going to run for governor of New York because Andrew Cuomo was corrupt and all this crazy stuff why well, you know, 
I mean, he did eventually leave office and all that jazz, but she would come in. She actually escaped from a mental institution, started paying some guy like $20 just randomly to drive her around, you know, to various banks trying to collect people for her campaign when the the governor's race wasn't for like three years later. Uh, But she would always go, confidence is key and hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. She's off her rocker. Yeah, but I mean, the, they are two good mottos to go by. Confidence is key. Uh, it's very important if you're an athlete. She stole that from somebody, but she's right. Confidence is key. Confidence is key. And then going off of the hydrate, 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 our, our last, um, I guess, area that you look at when you're evaluating athletes is the restorative process. Yes, restoration uh, is huge. Kids don't sleep enough. We, I'm not going to reference the old podcast that we did on sleep, but uh, you know when you look at part of it is being able to you know back away from their multiple sports or their one sport that they're doing too much, being able to back off in the weight room, being able to get sleep and repair and restore the body. Sleep is what repairs and restores the body, and if you're not getting enough of that, then you're not optimally you know, performing at your highest level. So we try to have athletes, you know, whether it's getting a half an hour more or an hour more, we try to find, you know, a gray area that's not 100% what they should do, but it's better than what they have been doing. You know, I'm going to put nutrition under the restorative category, trying to make sure that they're taking in, you know, the right types of foods after they get done lifting, making sure they're fueling their bodies, you know, before they get into it this goes into part of the history tell me your schedule or not injury history but getting to know your athlete when do you go to bed why do you go to bed so late you know we go through the nutritional components send me what you eat why aren't you having breakfast what are they fueling you with generally garbage if it comes from school um supplementation so because athletes sometimes are deficient in things or depending on what they need to do the supplements work and they help, you know, with the process. And as you get to know the athletes of evaluating their nu- nutritional things, you're looking for what they're deficient in. You have to kind of fill that in, and, the, you know, that helps to, to maximize everything. So sleep, nutrition, supplements, uh, taking care of your body, regenerating, doing your tissue work, mobility, flexibility, all of that. I need to know, I want to know, you know, I had an athlete come in, and I'm like, yeah, go foam roll. They're like, what's a foam roll? I'm like, are you under a rock, bro? Like, foam rolling has been going on for 30 years. I thought this was just one of the accepted things in life was that foam rolling at this point in time is common knowledge. And if you can imagine this, they were just the tightest thing ever. And it's like, oh, go meet the foam roll. It's going to be your best friend, and you're immediately going to get faster, a tick faster if you do it every day. So that athlete is now foam rolling every day, and we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, form rolling is also very important, just like confidence. But that that's, yeah, you got to foam roll every day. That that was the most important thing you really drilled into to me when I was there, too, is it's just something you can do easily. I mean, just grab a tiger tail and, and just, you know, while you're watching TV, just go to town. It, it's amazing to help out your flexibility, and it does get you a little bit faster if you do it. And they have so many... You know, it's not even like foam roll is your only option. There's the hypervolt, which is the percussion 
rapid vibrating thing that you can put all over your body. Um, we have high ballers and high rollers, which are basically like foam rolls on steroids. Um, there's a lot of different modalities you can use. Uh, the AccuMobe is something that we use. Uh, we do body tempering, which is 120 pound. It's like the foam roll of all foam rolls. It's a 120 pound cement cylinder that we we call it steamrolling, where you start at the calf and you roll all the way up the body. It's a chiropractic adjustment. Um, when it goes through your middle back, it feels amazing. It hurts like a whole bunch for about a minute and a half. And then when you get up, it feels like you foam roll for 45 minutes. So those are some things. It's just easier to have access to stuff. Um, so there's really no reason why you wouldn't kind of do those things if you wanted to, I don't know, not get injured. Yeah. Uh, flexibility is just a, a huge part of it, but I, I think that's really it for for this episode. Kind of covered on the the ways or the areas of how you evaluate athletes. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add, but I, I think that probably does about do it. Uh, no, you covered it pretty well. We have our our we have a big guest uh, host, not guest host, guest 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 next week. Nice. That's good to hear. Who's our guest? Guest. Next week or two weeks from now? Hold on. Uh, I'm so confused now. What's happening in a week? All right. Who's our guest? I don't know if you knew this, but we are going to be filming live uh, in North Haven next week because you're coming home. And I am coordinating uh, our second guest of our young podship career together. But I'm not telling you. Until they come. Who's coming? You'll like it, though. Who, who is it? Who is it? Who, who, who are they? Who are they? Well, I guess you'll have to... Who, who is he, her? Uh, I'm not going to...